Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, new word from the Pentagon about the growing scandal surrounding the secret hospitalization of the defense secretary. Lloyd Austin rushed to Walter Reed, put in the ICU, yet the president himself was not told for days. Also tonight, it's been a year of campaigning. Now it is time to vote. One week from tonight, we could know who won Iowa. Donald Trump is about to race from the courtroom to the campaign trail and back again as his rivals are hoping to pull off an upset. Also tonight, the missing piece of that Alaskan Airlines plane that blew off at 16,000 feet in the air has now been found as more planes are being grounded for inspections as one major airline says they found something. I'm Caitlin Collins and this is The Source. It has been one week now since Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was admitted to the ICU. Tonight, not only do we still not know what exactly sent him there, we don't know why his staff didn't tell the White House for days that he was even in the hospital, nonetheless in intensive care. The lack of transparency from a top U.S. military official, especially while the U.S. is dealing with multiple crises around the world, has resulted in some calls for Austin's resignation. The top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee is now demanding an immediate hearing, as Democrats have also acknowledged the serious nature of the failure to disclose this information, and they have questions as well. The White House says it will look into why officials weren't informed for days, while also stressing that President Biden does stand behind his defense secretary. We'll take a look at uh, process and procedure here uh, and uh, try to learn from this experience. There is no... Uh, uh, no plans for anything other than for Secretary Austin to stay in the job and continuing the leadership that he's been exuded, that he's been demonstrating. Here's what we do know about what happened. Austin was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on December 22nd for what we are told was an elective procedure, and he was released the next day. But on January 1st, he was taken by ambulance to the ICU after experiencing severe pain. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was told one day later that the White House, senior members of Congress, Austin's own deputy, who had assumed some of his duties while she was on vacation, were not told. It wasn't until January 4th when his own deputy was informed, the same day that President Biden also learned of it. On January 5th, Congress and the public were then notified. It's worth noting that last Thursday, we did see the Pentagon press secretary come out before reporters, but he said nothing about his boss's condition. It's not clear whether or not he knew at the time. Tonight, we do know that Secretary Austin is still in the hospital, but he is out of intensive care, and the Pentagon says he is doing well. And a sign that officials seem to understand the gravity of this situation, they are now planning daily updates on how he is doing. Joining me tonight is the retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, serving for both part of the Bush and Obama administrations, Admiral Mike Mullen. And Admiral, it's great to have you here tonight. And I should note that during your tenure, you appointed then General Austin to be the director 
of the joint staff. And I should also note, first and foremost, we all wish him a speedy and full recovery. We've had him here on the show before. But I do wonder what your reaction was to the failure to disclose critical information like this. Well, I think uh, Secretary Austin's uh, statement has said a lot. He, we come from a culture of accountability, and he's taken full responsibility for the mistake. Uh, and he's committed to ensure that it doesn't happen again, and I believe him in that regard. Uh, I'm confident that when he returns to the Pentagon, uh, he'll lay out more details than we know right now in, in terms of uh, actually what happened. I'm also confident that uh, the process and procedures, which were mentioned in your opening, uh, will be fixed uh, with respect to what happened. I don't think there's any question that Secretary Austin knows he made a mistake here and, and again, accepts full responsibility and he's very committed to fix it. Is that what you think would be the most helpful here for him to go either before reporters or in a statement when he does return to the Pentagon to himself explain you know, what went wrong here, why these, these key people, including the president, weren't, weren't informed about this? Yes, Caitlin, I think, uh, I think actually that would be the best thing for him to do. Uh, and that's also part of the accountability. And it's, it's not speaking just to reporters, but quite frankly, to the American people. Someone in this significant a position uh, owes that kind of transparency, certainly in a situation where we still don't know uh, all the details. I, I also will say that you know, his taking full responsibility uh, for a mistake is, is a very rare occurrence here, but it's very consistent with who he is. Is there any precedent that you can remember for something like this where, where the defense secretary was admitted to the hospital, you know, placed in intensive care, but the president himself wasn't told for, for several days? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, in, in my time, uh, I wasn't uh, aware. I mean, there are, there are set procedures where when principles uh, are, are not available for one reason or another uh, or don't have communications, that those responsibilities are handed down to their deputies. And, and that's a fairly routine process, if you will. I think everybody understands that. I'm just not aware of a precedent from the standpoint of... of uh, uh, what happened here, and certainly the, the, the system, if you will, right up through the president, not being made aware of it. So as part of those procedures, would when a deputy is handed their boss's responsibilities, as Kathleen Hicks, the deputy defense secretary, was here, would they typically be told of why they were being handed those responsibilities? Well, it's hard to say you know, what would be typical. You would think that there would be some knowledge in terms of what was going on, uh, if what I read publicly uh, is the case, that, that Deputy Secretary Hicks had responsibilities like this passed to her in the past, certainly not routine, but it, it, but it had happened before. And I think this was very consistent uh, with that uh, in that regard. I think the key thing here for, for people who even may disagree, may say that he doesn't need to disclose this, is, is to think of the chain of command. I mean, as Defense Secretary, he's obviously a critical part of that. What would you say are the, the national security implications if the defense secretary is in the ICU, but key people like the president and the national security advisor aren't aware of that? Well, I don't think, and certainly I hope no one thinks that, uh, that he did this intentionally to, to not disclose, if you will, uh, given the significance of his position. He understands that. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't, again, I don't know enough about the medical 
condition, except I'm told you know, it was never life-threatening. Uh, he, at one point in time, obviously was under a lot of pain. Uh, and, and so it's, it's the kind of thing that uh, you know, should have been disclosed. I think he's admitted that uh, and, and is committed to making sure that it doesn't happen again. I do think from a command and control standpoint, chain of command standpoint, there were people who were in authority, particularly the deputy, who, who had the wherewithal to respond if something significantly bad had happened. Uh, and I would note that, that in, this situ- in this situation, fortunately, nothing like that did. Yeah, very fortunately. Admiral Mike Mullen, you have perspective on this like few people. So thank you for, for joining us with that expertise tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. For more perspective on this, I want to bring in the former director of national intelligence and CNN's national security analyst, James Clapper. Thank you so much for, for being here, General. And, and just to kind of put you in that same perspective, you know, if you were in your role as the DNI back in your office there for for a moment. I mean, how would you feel from a national security standpoint to find out about something this serious, you know, four days after it happened? Well, Caitlin, I, I, I wouldn't be comfortable with it, but in, in line with what uh, Admiral Mullen uh, said, I think this is a real good opportunity for everybody to take a deep breath. Uh, I, I don't think, uh, I think we're making uh, a mountain out of a molehill here, and I think there was a confluence of uh, a couple of events that worked uh, against the secretary. One, the absence of Kath Hicks, who's the, the deputy secretary, was away on vacation in Puerto Rico, although LinkedIn communications-wise. And I think important, importantly, his chief of staff was ill and out uh, of the office. So. Uh, I spent 13 years in the Pentagon, a lot of time there, and sometimes uh, what appear to be simple bureaucratic processes don't work like they should. I think, um, you know, uh, Secretary Austin is known for someone who uh, really treasures his privacy. He, he was always that way, he was that way on active duty. He's somewhat of an introvert, avoids the limelight, avoids publicity wherever he can. And it's not as though he was spirited away to some undisclosed location. He was at Walter Reed, you know, the premier uh, uh, military medical facility. The commander at Walter Reed certainly knew he was there. His protective detail, Secretary Austin's protective detail, certainly knew where he was. So I think there's clearly a serious lapse in reporting and the reporting responsibilities that that I'm sure the Pentagon is going to police up. But General Clapper, with all due respect to that, I mean, I don't think anyone's concerned about the level of medical care. Obviously, Walter Reed is among the best places that someone could go. That's where President Trump went after he got COVID-19. But, but the concern that the president himself wasn't told that his defense secretary, and I understand, you know, there are people who say elective procedure, you have a right to your privacy. But, but when the defense secretary goes by ambulance to the hospital and he's in the ICU, do you believe that the maybe the public, maybe you don't believe has a right to know, but the president himself, the national security advisor, do you believe that they should have been told? No, I agree with you uh, completely. Uh, th- this should have been reported. I don't think it was his own responsibility, particularly if he's in pain, uh, to pick up the phone and call somebody. But someone on his immediate staff uh, should have attended to uh, notifying certainly the White House, the president, the National Security Advisor, the Congress, and for that matter, the public. 
So there's kind of a comedy of errors here, which I'm sure will be uh, uh, straightened up. Yeah. And as Admiral Mullen pointed out, fortunately there was no extremist situation uh, that, you know, uh, really would have been a, a, a serious thing. I, th I think had there been a, a, an extremist situation, that the, the lines of communications would have lit up uh, uh, pretty vigorously. Yeah, I think that was the concern we heard from lawmakers like Senator Roger Wicker, who said, you know, look at, I mean, any time in the world, obviously this job is critical, but given what's happening in the Middle East and how on edge the region has been, the war in Ukraine, and just to highlight something we've just learned a minute ago, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Eric Smith, we've now learned he had open heart surgery today. They told us, uh, the Marine Corps just announced this in a press release. He had went into cardiac arrest on October 29th. We did know about that, and they told us about that within 24 hours. But it does go to show that, I mean, he had open-heart surgery, and they're informing of us of that, you know, mere hours on the same day that that happened. Well, it shows the fact, uh, Caitlin, that uh, when you're in these uh, senior jobs, you, you really give up your right to privacy. And... Uh, certainly, the Marine Corps did, has done the right thing from from the from the outset. When uh, General Smith had his attack, when he was out jogging around the, the Marine barracks, and uh, I have I wasn't aware that he had open heart surgery, but the fact that that's been made known publicly is is that's the right way to do it. What I do hope Secretary Austin will do is at the appropriate time lay out in more detail as much as that's going to go against his personal grain of uh, the proclivity for privacy and lay out uh, what his condition was and how it was treated and what happened. And I, I think that would go a long way towards uh, clearing the air and certainly what's yeah. going to be done to ensure that uh, the, the, s such events are properly reported. Well, that's where you, General Clapper and Admiral Mullen are in agreement on that, that he should come forward and talk about that. Uh, General Clapper, as I said to Admiral Mullen, you're uniquely positioned to talk about this. So, so thank you for coming on tonight to, to do so. Thanks, Caitlin. Up next here on The Source, we are a week out from the first votes of the 2024 election. It's hard to believe we're already here. President Biden today was ramping up his campaign to take down who he believes he's going to be facing, Donald Trump, comparing him to Confederates who refused to accept that they lost the Civil War. Also tonight, after that terrifying incident on an Alaskan Airlines jet where a door plug the size of a refrigerator blew off mid-flight, we've now learned United Airlines has just found loose bolts on some of its grounded Boeing 737s. We are waiting an update tonight from the NTSB ahead. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It is the final days before the Iowa caucuses as the Republican frontrunner is packing up his personal 757, leaving the state because Donald Trump opting for sitting in court rather than going to speak to voters and campaign in front of them tomorrow. That is something he is choosing to do 
optionally. We'll speak about that with a lawyer later in the hour. But that comes as his two leading challengers are begging for votes is also battling each other. Also, meanwhile, President Biden today was in South Carolina, making it clear who he expects to be facing as a Republican nominee come November. We saw something on January 6th we'd never seen before, even during the Civil War. Insurrectionists waving Confederate flags inside the halls of Congress, built by enslaved Americans. For hours, the defeated former president sat in the private dining room off of my office, the Oval Office, and did nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Losers are taught to concede when they lose. And he's a loser. No holding back there in that speech. I am joined tonight by former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger and former Obama administration official Van Jones. Thank you both for being being here tonight. And Van, you know, there was this one line from President Biden. You know, he's in South Carolina. He's attempting to rally black voters as he's been losing support with them in the state that helped really propel him to the nomination back in 2020. But he drew this direct line at one point during the speech. And I want everyone to listen to this between this history of white supremacy to what the former president is doing today. In our time, there's still the old ghost of new new garments. And we all need to rise to meet the moment. And the moment is now. I mean, Van, what did you make of him essentially arguing that, you know, this those who say the Confederate rebellion was this noble cause, that it was self-serving, as Biden was putting it, in the same way that he says Trump is rewriting history by trying to falsely claim that the election was stolen? Yeah, you know, I thought it was actually pretty powerful. It, it wasn't a frame I had thought of before or heard before. You, you know, the, the lost cause, you know, that's sort of the, uh, I grew up in, in Tennessee, you know, some of us are, are, are Southerners, and you, you know that kind of, you know, we, 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 we uh, have this lost cause, and you look back, and you, you go back over and over and over again, and this is like a second lost cause is what, what uh, Biden is saying, that the Southern Confederates were defeated, and they would never admit it, and now you've got the Trump uh, machine defeated, and it won't admit it, and he's drawing a line between that refusal uh, to deal with reality and the violence of, of uh, you know, January uh, the 7th and uh, January uh, 6th and the, the potential violence that could come with this election. So for me, I think he's doing a good job trying to get back to his home turf, South Carolina, get back to the black base, reminding them of some of the stuff that maybe people have forgotten about and reframing what we're seeing as a part of a long tradition of very, very dangerous politics in America. And Congressman Kinzinger, I mean, this comes as Elise Stefanik yesterday on the Sunday shows she is the Republican conference chair, and she's now echoing the language that the former president is using when it comes to the January 6th defendants, the people who, who went to the Capitol and rioted that day, describing them as hostages. This is what she said on Meet the Press. I have concerns about the treatment of January 6 hostages. Uh, I have concerns. We have a role in Congress of oversight over our treatments of prisoners. Uh, and I believe that we're seeing the weaponization of the federal government against not just President Trump, but we're seeing it against conservatives. What did you make, Congressman, of seeing such a prominent member of your party saying that? Well, I mean, Elise is so incredibly, insanely thirsty to be vice president. I mean, that's what she's doing. She's out there mimicking what Donald Trump says. He knows he's watching. He'd probably send her a text, told her, good job, Elise. And she felt really good about herself. I mean, that's what she's doing. And she's doing, and and this is a, 
look, if I'm a rank and file member of the house still, here's where I would be upset because I used to be able to just say, oh, Donald Trump, you know, I don't know what he says. I'm not paying attention. You now have the leader of the messaging branch. What you say as a Republican, the conference chair comes up with talking points now saying they're January 6 hostages. Here's what you're going to see, Caitlin. This is now going to be echoed over and over as it becomes a litmus test, whether you're a true conservative or not, whether you say hostages or prisoners. And soon you're going to see more and more people saying this. I think it's so obvious. Just one of the areas I think, as well as Joe Biden did in that speech, one of the areas I think he really needs to push even harder on is there's this idea that Donald Trump is a tough person who's doing this authoritarian things because he's strong. The reality is he's a, he's, he's a whiner. He's frightened. He's scared. He's doing this because he's a victim in his own mind, and he wants to convince everybody he's a victim. Donald Trump is actually a very weak person, and I think that's the way to do real damage in his base, even though it's not necessarily going to turn the primary or anything like that around. A lot of questions about what that primary will look like. Van Jones, Adam Kinzinger, as always, thank you both. You bet. Meanwhile, congressional leaders on Capitol Hill who aren't talking about January 6th hostages say that they have reached a deal to avert another looming government shutdown. But Republicans on the far right of that House conference are already balking at it. We'll speak to one of them right after this. Major deal that has been struck by congressional leadership to avoid a government shutdown may already be in trouble. This weekend, Senator Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Mike Johnson said they struck a deal on the overall spending levels when it comes to a government funding package. But with little time to avert disaster, some on the far right are already putting up stiff resistance. Republican Congressman Chip Roy of Texas is here, quite literally driving through Iowa on a bus right now. We'll get to why you're in Iowa in a moment, Congressman. But but this $1.66 trillion agreement that Speaker Johnson has made with Senator Schumer, is that acceptable to you? You know, first of all, you and I should be in Houston, but unfortunately, Alabama and Texas (laughs) didn't do their end of the job. So we're watching Michigan and Washington. But uh, look, uh, you know, no, uh, you know, I do not support this bill. And and it's chock full of gimmicks, same kind of stuff that everybody in America is sick of, regardless of whether you're left or far right. Uh, The fact of the matter is we're tired of the same old, same old. We're spending more money that we don't have. You know, we were trying to reduce spending a year ago down to pre-COVID levels, like 1471. Right now, we actually adhere to the caps that were embraced last year on a bipartisan basis, majority of Democrats, majority of Republicans, and we would only spend 1562. That's 1.562 trillion. Instead, another deal has been cut, and it's going to be 1.66 trillion, which busts the caps and uses a bunch of gimmicks to backfill and increase spending. So Americans are tired of that. So uh, I oppose it. It's just more of the same. And you know, I wish Speaker Johnson weren't doing this. I'm very disappointed, and hopefully we can try to figure out what we can do to change it in the next few days. Well, who do you hold responsible for it? Is it Speaker Johnson? Well, I mean, his office is doing the negotiating, so, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the deal. And if we end up doing this by suspension, we're going to have to call, start calling him the suspension speaker. I think we should do regular order, and we should try to get this done the right way. But, uh, look, there's not going to be support, you, you know, across the board among Republicans, because a lot of us want to reduce spending. And the American people sent us here to cut spending and not keep doing more of the same thing. We're $34 trillion in debt. Both sides should agree to cut spending. And in fact, we did. We came to an agreement last year to cap spending. Now we're going to blow past those caps. 
Well, I mean, a lot of what this looks like is the same situation that then Speaker Kevin McCarthy found himself in uh, not long ago, just several months ago. I mean, is Mike Johnson, Speaker Johnson, going to potentially face the same fate? Are Republicans going to try to oust him? uh, Last year, when uh, the ranking member of the Appropriations Committee for Democrats, Rose DeLora, she didn't vote for this bill because the side deals weren't written into the bill. That's actually, I think, part of the problem here. We only agreed and voted on a Democrats and Republicans supported a bill at $1.59 trillion. Now they're going to blow it by another $70 billion. We shouldn't do it. Speaker Johnson shouldn't do it. I think there's going to be some real conversations this week about what we need to do going forward. Does that include potentially moving to oust him from his job? Yeah, I mean, again, that's that's not the road I prefer. I mean, you know, we've gone down the road. I didn't I didn't prefer to go down that road with Speaker McCarthy. Uh, we need to figure out how to get this all done together. But it isn't good. And there's a lot of my colleagues who are pretty frustrated about it. So we'll see what happens this week. OK, you said you don't prefer it, but you did not say no to that, I should note. And also, you know, speaking of what's going on, I know there's a lot of immigration concerns that Republicans have about what's in this bill Democrats say they're concerned about what their party leaders are willing to agree to. There is also a hearing on Capitol Hill on Wednesday regarding the potential impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. I understand Republicans disagree on policy, but does this rise to high crimes and misdemeanors in your view? Yeah, I do. I mean, look, and I've I've been uh, in that position for about three years. I put out a report three years ago detailing the extent to which uh, Secretary Mayorkas had uh, you know, not carried out his duty to faithfully execute the laws of the United States, endangering Texas, empowering cartels, empowering China. Now he's down at the border. He acknowledges 85 percent of the people that are being encountered are being released into the United States. We've got about 50,000 a month gotaways, 300,000 encounters in December, of which 250,000 are being released. That is completely untenable. Texas has spent twelve and a half billion dollars of our own money to deal with the problem. Kayla and I had six children in the school district in which my family lives died from fentanyl poisoning last year. It's a complete abdication of his responsibility. Of course, we should impeach him. We have a few Republicans, not many, eight, who didn't do it in the fall. I hopefully that they'll reconsider after we have a hearing tomorrow in the uh, Homeland uh, Security Committee with Mark Green. Well, I, I think there are real questions about whether or not impeaching him is going to solve any of the issues that you just raised. But you just mentioned that it's going through the Homeland Security Committee, not the committee, one of the ones that you sit on, House Judiciary. Are you okay with it not being run through House Judiciary as typically an impeachment proceeding, as rare as this is, would happen? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's reasons to have a judiciary. There's some reasons to have it in the homeland. We've covered a lot of this there. Uh, Mark Green's doing a great job exposing a lot of the problems there over in the Homeland Committee. Okay, uh, at the so end of the okay day, it's going to be the House floor that makes the decision. And be like, I look, I'm fine with it. At the end of the day, you're right. It's a little bit of a shiny object compared to what we should do, which is defund the uh, ridiculousness of the administration. Use the power of the purse to force Biden to do his job to secure the border. Does that mean shut down the government if you don't get what you want on immigration? If that's what's necessary. I mean, Texas can't keep you know dealing with this. I mean, it's an absolute okay. train wreck, a disaster, and it's killing our economy. So we should use the power of the purse the founders gave us. And if Joe Biden chooses to shut down the economy instead of shutting down the border, that's on him, not on us. Well, I mean, it would be on you because you are Congress. You have the power of the purse. But but uh, I just want to right, mention while the, you're in Iowa, Congressman. We have the power Iowa, to choose what we find. Yeah, well, we'll see what Republicans choose to do here. I mean, yeah. we'll see if that if that yeah. shutdown happens, how the messaging war there works. But I do want to ask you, because you're in Iowa, you're campaigning for Governor Ron DeSantis. Yeah. You are one of five uh, House Republicans who have chosen to endorse him, not Donald Trump. Um, 
the former president is going to be at a hearing tomorrow on whether or not presidents have presidential immunity. I was talking to Governor DeSantis about this at our town hall last week. But can you do you understand the logic, according to his post today and Trump arguing that he is immune from charges because of presidential immunity? But if he is back in the White House, that President Biden will face an indictment? Well, look, this is part of the problem, right? I mean, look, there's a lot of charges that are being thrown at the president, some of which, you know, are pretty uh, crazy, like taking him off the ballot in Colorado. Those kinds of things are all politically driven. But this is why I'm supporting Governor DeSantis in significant part. Great track record, great man, served in the Navy, a lot of good reasons to support him. But also, I want to have somebody I know can win in the fall, like Governor DeSantis did in Florida. But also, we're not looking backwards, trying to relitigate stuff, looking backwards to January 6th. I want someone to look forwards. I want somebody who can serve for eight years. I want us to get out of this rut, provide a vision for the country. And Governor DeSantis is the guy to do that. And that's that's why I'm out campaigning for him hard. He's hit 99 counties, 240 events, I think, across the state of Iowa. Today, I was out with Casey DeSantis meeting with a bunch of folks throughout rural Iowa. There's a lot of enthusiasm. And look, he's trending up to, and, and President, former President Trump is trending down. And frankly, Nikki Haley is plummeting after she uh, embarrassed herself saying that Iowa should be corrected by New Hampshire. We'll see what the Iowans decide a week from today. Congressman Chip Roy, thank you for your time. Take care, Caitlin. Tonight, also investigators say that they do have the missing part of that Alaskan Airlines plane that flew off mid-flight. As another airline tonight is reporting, they too have found loose bolts on the same type of Boeing aircraft. We are awaiting a live update from the NTSB any moment. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We're standing by tonight for the National Transportation Safety Board to provide an update on the terrifying incident that happened aboard an Alaskan Airlines flight where part of the plane blew away mid-flight, leaving a massive hole in the side of the aircraft as it ascended at 16,000 feet. Right now, all Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes have been grounded until they can be re-inspected to make sure this doesn't happen again. Tonight, United Airlines has said that during their look, they have discovered loose bolts on an undisclosed number of their Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes, the same aircraft, each one, of course, being inspected carefully after what happened here. Joining me tonight is Greg Fyth, a former NTSB investigator. And Greg, I'm so glad you're here because we just got an update from Alaska Airlines uh, just in the last several moments. And and part of it, they say that as they are waiting to do these you know, formal inspections, that initial reports from their technicians do indicate some loose hardware was visible on some aircraft, a.k.a. more loose hardware on more planes. How significant is that? It's very significant, Caitlin. From the standpoint, now you have Alaska finding loose bolts, of course, United has reported that they found loose bolts on apparently five of their aircraft. Now the question is, why? Um, these airplanes are in during manufacture at Boeing, even though the tube is actually made by a vendor. When it gets to Boeing, Boeing is using that particular door for 
bringing in uh, interior parts and that kind of thing during the assembly process, once that's done, it has to be, uh, of, of course, uh, reconnected. And then it has to be sealed. The bolts have to be in place and it has to be signed off. The question is, why are these bolts coming loose? And there's a number of reasons for it, I'm sure. Well, I mean, what would those reasons be? Well, when you look at it, depending on the type of bolt and nut assembly that they're using, that airplane, the tube itself, is constantly blowing up and shrinking with pressurization cycles. Of course, then you have the twisting moment of that fuselage tube from aerodynamic loads. Like anything else, a nut and a bolt will loosen itself. The question is, why aren't these bolts safety wired? Or why aren't they using a, uh, a like uh, a system or a, uh, a putty called Loctite to keep the threads um, solid so that these bolts don't come loose? There's a lot of questions with regard to the procedures for closing up that door. And it's not an assembly that is inspected on a regular basis because it's covered by a uh, interior wall panel. Well, given your role as a former investigator, I wonder, you know, if you were in your current, if you were in that job right now and you're reading this statement from Alaska Air that they have found more loose hardware that was visible on more aircraft. I mean, does that seem to indicate that, that this could be a more widespread problem than they initially believed? Oh, I think this is definitely a widespread problem, not only for Alaska, we've seen it with United, and I'm sure that some of the other carriers that are operating uh, these, air, these series aircraft will probably find some loose hardware. The question is, how is it coming out of the manufacturer, Boeing, with this hardware loose, or is it happening in service? The airplane is coming out of the factory just fine, but in-service use is causing these bolts and nuts to come loose to a point where the pressurization cycle and, of course, aerodynamics when the airplane's in the air um, are causing this loose door then to be in the slipstream and get ripped off like this one did. Yeah. Greg Feith, I, I mean, there are so many questions that so many passengers have about this. We are waiting for an NTSB update tonight. I hope you'll you'll continue to join us as we continue to watch this throughout the week. Thank you very much, Greg Fife. Absolutely, Caitlin. Thank you. Meanwhile, as we wait for that update from the NTSB, this story also tonight, as Donald Trump is expected to be in the courthouse instead of on the campaign trail tomorrow, as he is trying to get his federal election interference case, that's the one in Washington, D.C., by Jack Smith, he's hoping to get it dismissed based on this claim that he has been making of presidential immunity. It's an argument that has not worked for him before, but it could be one of the most critical aspects of this investigation. Donald Trump choosing to trade the campaign trail for the courtroom. I should note that he does not have to, at least not at this point. But what the former president wants here to appear in person tomorrow in Washington as his lawyers will be there arguing that he is untouchable, or as he puts it. They want to try and get a guilty plea from the Supreme Court of the United States, which I can't imagine because you have presidential immunity. In Georgia, Trump's legal team filed a similar argument today with his lawyers arguing, and I'm quoting their filing now, that the indictment is barred by presidential immunity and should be dismissed. The reality here, of course, is that no matter how many times his lawyers have continued to make this argument or how many times Trump himself has continued to post about it online, and it's been a lot, 
courts have continued to reject his claims of absolute immunity. Just last month, this very argument was shot down three different times in three different courts. It happened again today. An appeals court in a separate issue refused to even hear his immunity claims in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Of course, Trump has already been found liable by a court for sexually harassing her. That they are taking her back again. She is taking him back again, I should note, saying that she has defamed him, that he has defamed her yet again. But Trump is hoping for a different outcome from all of this, but from some very familiar faces at the Supreme Court. All I want is fair. I fought really hard to get three very, very good people in there, great people, very smart people. I should note the Supreme Court has already rejected a similar immunity claim from Donald Trump, with Chief Justice John Roberts writing, quote, we cannot conclude that absolute immunity is necessary or appropriate. That was in response to a decision about a state subpoena for the very financial records that formed the background of the New York fraud case that, here in New York, is threatening Trump's entire real estate empire. So far, all of those cases have been civil. That's an important distinction here. The question of criminal prosecution of a former president has never been tested. It is not hyperbole to say that the fight over immunity could be the most important part of the election interference case. It can determine where and when it goes. When it comes to Trump's claims that January 6th was just him, quote, doing his duty as president, the chief judge of the same court that is going to, of the appeals that will hear that appeal tomorrow, just two weeks ago, wrote this. When a first-term president opts to seek a second term, his campaign to win re-election is not an official presidential act. As for now, as for Trump, he is insisting on social media that he wasn't campaigning because he says the election was long over. By his logic, then, all of his actions from Election Day 2020 through January 6, 2021, were directly related to his official duties as president. Therefore, he's immune. But that's where another problem for the Trump legal team crops up. Trump himself, on video, saying this as the mob attacked the, cop- the Capitol. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say... Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers is here to break down all of this of what we're going to see tomorrow. I mean, we have seen courts repeatedly reject this claim of presidential immunity. It's being tested in a new way. He's now claiming in Georgia this as well for the state charges that he's facing there. Is it clear to you that he's just trying to get this to the Supreme Court and in front of those, those justices? It is, and that's for two reasons. One, he thinks he might have success there, and he tells us why, because he put three of them on the court. But more to the point, this is all about delay, really, because the longer he can string out these prosecutions, the more likely it is that he won't be tried before the election. The more likely it is he wins election, the more likely it is that he can just stop all of these cases in their tracks. And so, I mean, the election, the campaign, the courtroom, we're seeing this all go back and forth. He is going to court tomorrow, but there is, is there any reason legally... For, for him to be there for these arguments? No, not at all. You know, this is really different from a trial court. There are no witnesses. There's no jury. It's just the appellate judges and then the lawyers making the arguments. Clients don't usually go at all. And he may be bored to death, honestly, without any kind of live witnesses or any action there. There's also no in and out of the courtroom. You go, you make your arguments, you leave. There's not all these breaks where you come out and speak to the press. So I'll actually be surprised if he goes um, and if he goes... He'll probably never go again to an appellate argument. Well, I think I, I can like feel a Trump 
spokesperson texting me now saying, well, you know, part of why he's going is to show that he's there, to show the judge that he, the judges that he's serious about this and their arguments that they're making here. I mean, do you, is the fact that we can be able to, we're going to be able to listen to this, like how much influence do you think he'll try to have over what his attorneys are arguing? Like what we saw happen here in New York, where he was trying to have a lot of influence on what was actually being said inside the courtroom. Yeah, I don't think it'll be as significant here. You know, I think his presence in the the civil trial was intended to, yes, influence what his lawyers are saying, making the arguments he wants them to make. But it also was part of cross-examination, examining witnesses. He can have more influence there. These are legal arguments made to judges. I think his lawyers will be focused on what they need to say, and the judges certainly won't care whether he's there or not. What about the other argument that he's making, which is that this is this would violate the double jeopardy cause, but, clause? Because they're saying that because he was impeached by the House and the Senate tried him, but obviously did not convict him, that this would therefore qualify as double jeopardy. Because when you think about what Senator Mitch McConnell said, I mean, at the time, he certainly didn't seem to think that, that that's what that was considered. Yeah, so, so what the clause said... President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen. We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one. Impeachment is a political process. Well, how will the judges respond to the argument that this would violate double jeopardy? So it's a creative argument, but the clause doesn't say what he suggests. It says a, a reading of the clause's text and all of the history surrounding it. He's going to lose this one. Jennifer Rogers, we will wait to see and listen to all of this tomorrow. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Kayla. Also up next tonight, something we're tracking closely here at CNN, a major explosion that happened at a hotel in Texas. Nearly two dozen people have been hurt. What we are now learning likely caused this blast. A scary scene in Texas tonight as you're looking at what is the aftermath of an explosion at a hotel in downtown Fort Worth that left at least 21 people hurt, some of them critically so, and large pieces of debris littering the street. No one was killed in the blast, thankfully, but witnesses have reported seeing multiple people coming out of the Sandman Signature Hotel covered with blood on their faces. So far, fire officials believe that this was caused by some type of gas explosion, but they're still working tonight to verify the cause, and we'll keep you updated as we learn more. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip is up next. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.